All right, so two millennia ago, a voice could be heard in the Judean wilderness, a voice that heralded the arrival of somebody very special. Of course, the voice belonged to a man named John the Baptist, and his announcement had to do with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the beginning, the start of the public ministry of the Messiah. And as we learned last week, when John came on the scene, he was a very interesting character. He had long hair, why? Because he was a Nazarite from birth. Um, he wore hairy camel clothes, and his diet was very simple, grasshoppers dipped in wild honey. Now, can you imagine this guy? Put yourself in the sandals of John the Baptist, try to go back in time. There you are by the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness, and there's John, and perhaps he's talking and ministering to somebody, and all of a sudden he looks down, and he's like, you know, steps on a grasshopper, picks the thing up, and he bites into it. He's like, ugh, I mean, find my honey, right? Dips it in the honey. Mmm, crunchy yet satisfying. And then he keeps on preaching. This is the guy we're talking about. And his message, listen, was loud, and his message was fiery. And here, here's his message. Quote, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And wow, did God bless his ministry. Look again at how God blessed John the Baptist's ministry. It says, then Jerusalem and how much of Judea? Oh, that's a lot of people. That's thousands of people. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, and so remember on the timeline, the biblical timeline, this is between the Old Testament the New Testament, here's John called by God, right? This is obviously before the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, before the birthday of the church and the day of Pentecost, uh, before um, the kickoff of the dispensation of grace. And God, what does he do? He uses John the Baptist in such a mighty way. And many, many Jews prepared themselves for the coming of the Lord because of his ministry. Now, in verse 15, John the Apostle continued his narrative about John the Baptist with these words, okay? So we're starting in verse 15 today. So right now, if you're looking at John 1, verse 15, can you say amen? amen. Stay with me all the way through. John the Apostle writes this about John the Baptist. He says, John bore witness about him, and he cried out, this was he, speaking of Christ, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so regarding Jesus, John said, he who comes, can you shout out the two words please? After me ranks before me because he was before me. All right, and so why did John say that Jesus came after him. Well, it's simply because Jesus was born about six months after John the Baptist. John's mother, Elizabeth, who was related, by the way, to Mary, John's mother, Elizabeth, gave birth to him, and then about six months later, the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus. That means that John the Baptist was older than Jesus. So if John was born first, why did he say at the end of the sentence, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was, can you shout out the last two words, please? 
Okay, and so if John is older than Jesus, then why in the world did he say that Jesus comes before me? And the answer to that question is because John the Baptist knew who Jesus really was. Who was Jesus? Well, John the Apostle told us in the very first verse of the Gospel of John. And it's such an ver- uh, important verse, I want you to look at it again. Please look at John 1, 1. Who is Christ. Here's the answer. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, you tell me, God. And so in the beginning was the Word. That means that the Word was pre-existent before the creation of the universe, and the Word was with God. That means that the Word was co-existent for all eternity with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and the Word was God. That means the Word was self-existent as deity, pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent. John the Baptist knew that Christ was God who took on human flesh, and speaking of the one who's fully God and fully man, now um, John the Apostle uh, writes this about Jesus. So please look at verse 16 now. He says, for from his fullness, we have all received. All right, so who's we in the context there? Everybody look at me real quick. When you're reading the Bible, make sure that you're reading the verses before and the the verses after. Don't just pull verses out of the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. Okay, so who's the we? Who's the we um, that have received the fullness from Christ? Well, the answer to that question is in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, so how many in this room, you know that, that you are a child of God? All right, so guess what? You've received fullness from the Lord Jesus Christ, end of verse 16, grace upon grace. And so you, as a child of God, you haven't just received a little bit of grace, you have received grace, heaping upon grace, heaping upon grace. We thank God for the grace of God in our lives. We're so grateful, right? Or at least we should be. Now it says in verse 17 that the law came, um, I'm sorry, for the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, God gave um, Moses the moral law. And the moral law was a clear standard, right, of what is right and what is wrong. And the, the law of God was absolutely perfect. Paul put it this way in his letter uh, to the Romans. Check it out. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. For we know that the law is spiritual, but here's the problem. Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So even though the law is holy and righteous and good, there's a problem. The problem is not with God's law. God's law is perfect. The problem is, is with mankind's sinful nature. We, like Paul says at the end of the verse, we are of the flesh, we're sold under sin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is so important that you grasp this truth that I'm talking about right now. How in the world do we know that we're sinners? 
The answer is because the law tells us. One of the purposes of the law is to serve as a mirror in our lives. How many of you guys ever feel like that in the morning, right? And so um, what, what is one of the purposes of a mirror? The mirror is there and it shows us our shortcomings, right? My hair's messed up. My face is greasy. Oh man, I got sleep in my eyes or a boogie in my nose or whatever, right? So you look in the mirror and that's what you see. You see your shortcomings and it's the same way. You look into the mirror of God's moral law and what does it tell you? It tells you you are a sinner <laughs> and I am a sinner. And so that's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter three, through the law comes the what of sin? The knowledge of sin. Why do you think so many people avoid this book like the plague? Because they don't like to be convicted. They don't wanna look at the mirror and see that there's a problem. But that is absolutely essential that we look into God's perfect moral law. How do we know we're liars? The way we know is because the law says, quote, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so we look into the mirror and it's like, oh man, I, oh, I remember when I told that lie to cover my rear end about that person. Guilty, right? And by the way, quick side note, how many of you guys know that it's not my job for you to come in here for me to whip you up and make you feel real good? Right, that's not my job. My job is to teach the word of God to you, whether it makes us feel good or whether it makes us not feel good. All right, so how do we know we're liars? Because we look into the mirror of God's holy, righteous, and good law. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. How do we know we're covetors, right? Because the law says, quote, you shall not covet. We look into the mirror, oh man, I remember that time I was in the house, that guy's house, and it was a side room, and there was a wad of hundreds, and I actually looked around to see if anybody was looking, any cameras, and I really wanted that. But I didn't steal it, so I didn't sin. Oh, yes, you did. You sinned. Why? Well, even though you didn't steal it, thou shalt not steal, the 10th commandment says you shall not covet, you shall not desire, you shall not lust, after something that is your neighbor's. And so what's the penalty for our sin? Well, this is like the most quoted verse at Calvary Poor St. Lucie. <laughs> for the wages of sin is, you shout out the word, death. death. Somebody says, it sounds like we're in trouble. Listen, yeah, <laughs> mankind is in trouble. And we, if you're listening right now, say amen here and we cannot fix ourselves by our good works. And that is why we are so grateful for the second part of that verse. The wages of sin is death, but, by the way, how many of you guys are glad for that but right there, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God for grace upon grace. Praise God that we're children of God through faith in Jesus and we receive that grace. And so Paul wrote to the Christians at the church of Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. With all that in mind, please look back at verse 17. 
And so we are so thankful that the law was given through Moses. You say, really? Yeah, we're so thankful, why? Because it showed us we're sinners in need of a savior. So we're thankful the law was given through Moses. And for those of us who have been saved by that savior, we're especially thankful that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now everybody look at me real quick. I tell you, John 1 has been a challenge, quite frankly, as your pastor. I am so careful and prayerful that God would help me to rightly divide the word of truth as I feed the flock of God, the word of God. And what you gotta know is that John uh, chapter one, John chapter one is a gold mine. And now we're in week, week three since we kicked off John. And what have we been doing essentially is we've been mining these precious, priceless nuggets of truth and pulling them out. Why? So we can understand who God really is, who we really are, and how much we need him. And here, by the way, is one of those priceless, precious nuggets of truth in verse 18. And it's one of the most powerful verses showing that the deity of Christ is absolutely true. And so once again, please look at it. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. And so in Old Testament times, God sometimes gave his people visions. He sometimes gave his people dreams. He sometimes gave his people what's called theophanies. Theophanies were veiled manifestations of himself. But no human being ever received a direct view of God seeing the pure essence of his glorious deity. If someone somehow was able to look directly at God's pure essence, you know what would happen to them? As a human being, they would fall over dead. And so that's why um, when Moses, back in um, the Old Testament, asked God, God, show me your glory. Look at how the Lord responded. He said, you can't see my face, Moses, for a man shall not see me and live. And so this is why John said, again in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All right, so who is the only God who is at the Father's side? Yeah, the Son of God, who has made the Father known. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so again, if you missed it in week one, there is one God. Can you guys please say one God? One God, one God eternally existent in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so how did the second person of the Trinity make God known? We covered it last week. Here it is right here. Praise God, right? And the Word, the Lagos. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so no human being has ever received a direct view of God seeing the pure essence of his glorious deity. But here's what you need to know. Many people, thousands of people in the first century saw Jesus Christ who veiled the pure essence 
of his glorious deity behind his human flesh. And so now, um, in verse 19, John the Apostle switches gears again, and he's gonna return to the story about John the Baptist. Now, before we read verses 19 through 22, I gotta set the stage for you so you know what's going on. So what you need to know is right here, right now in the Bible, messianic expectation is through the roof. And so you have um, Israel, and they're there, but here's the thing, they're under the iron fist of Rome. They're under the iron fist of the Roman Empire. And so these Jews, man, even though they're suffering and even though they're having a really difficult time, they have their scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, and their scriptures promise that a deliverer is gonna come and that deliverer is gonna set them free. Messiah. And so what are they doing? Right here, right now in the Bible. They're longing for their Messiah. And then enter John the Baptist. Now, as we've already seen, God blesses the ministry of John the Baptist tremendously. Thousands of people are coming out to hear him preach and be baptized. And that piqued the interest of what's known as the Sanhedrin. By the way, I'm just wondering, if you ever heard of the, and you know what the Sanhedrin is, raise your hand so I can just see real quick. Okay, that's about a third of you. And so the Sanhedrin was the ruling, um, the rulers of Israel, kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious establishment, the leadership um, of that day. And so the, uh, John the Baptist's ministry piqued their interest in Jerusalem. And, and they're, they're wondering, they're wanting to know, who in the world is this preacher out in the wilderness? Who is this guy that thousands of people are going out uh, to hear him? And so what they did is they picked a committee. You, 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 you. All right. So the Pharisee part of the Sanhedrin picks this committee and they're like, I want you guys, pack your bags, you're going out to the Jordan River and I want you guys to find out what this John is all about. So with that in mind, now we can look at verse 19. If you're looking at verse 19, say amen here. And so, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, John the Baptist knows messianic expectation is really high. He doesn't want anybody to be confused. I am not the Christ, verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So verse 22, they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And so the religious committee asked John, are you Elijah? And the reason they asked that question was because of a couple prophecies in the book of Malachi in their scriptures. If you're brand new to the Bible, what you gotta understand is that the old, in our Bibles, the Old Testament is divided from the New Testament um, and so you have the last book in our Old Testament, and that is Malachi. 
and then you have 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak, and then you have the kickoff of the New Testament, and that is with the Gospel of Matthew. And so in the last book of our Old Testament, Malachi, around 400 BC, God says this through Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 400 BC, that is a messianic prophecy um, specifically about the messenger that's gonna come before Messiah comes. If that makes sense to you guys, say amen. amen. All right, and then Malachi later, God later says, um, through his prophet Malachi, behold, I will send you, shout out his name, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. All right, so because of these Old Testament prophet, uh, prophecies in Malachi, that's why this religious committee asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he says, quote, I am not. Now that's very curious to me because Jesus Christ later said this about John the Baptist, quote, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. All right, so if Elijah says, I'm, I'm sorry, if John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah, but then Jesus says, John was Elijah to come, question, is there a contradiction in the Bible? Oh, it's so quiet right now. Here's what you need to know. How many of you guys believe that God is absolutely perfect and cannot make any mistakes? Right, we believe that. How many of you believe that all scripture is given by inspiration, breathed out by God? Right, we know that, true. Okay, and so the scriptures have been breathed out by a perfect God. That means that God's word, the original manuscripts, God's word is perfect and if something's perfect, there can't be any contradictions. Now you need to know that. You gotta stand on that. You gotta be sure of that. And, and um, I encourage you um, to make sure that that's something that, that you stand on. And here, because here's the thing, in your life and in my life, there's gonna be people, skeptics and critics, and they're gonna say, oh, this is just, I've heard it. This is just a man-made book. It's filled with contradictions. You can't trust it. Listen, that's a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. That is not a solely man-made book filled with contradictions. It's just not. And by the way, one of my heroes in the faith, I talk about him a lot, he's with Jesus. His name is Dr. Norman Geisler. He wrote, I think, over 100 books. He started the seminary that I attended. Um, and he wrote one book. It took him a very long time uh, but it's called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. And so this guy actually spent such a long time and he took all these questions from the critics and all these questions from the um, doubters, right? And the skeptics who said there's so-called contradictions in the Bible and he answered over 800 of them, difficult parts of the Bible. And he dug down. Because ladies and gentlemen, how many of you guys know that our brains are just like, like little peanuts compared to the infinite God. Yeah. 
Okay, so what we need, the problem is not with him, the problem is with us. We just need to dig down and dig down, and, and what happens is as we dig down and dig down, we start to see that there aren't any contradictions. And so if you wanna go deeper, you can get the big book of Bible difficulties, Dr. Norman Geisler. But back to Elijah, what he said and what Jesus said, Elijah says, I'm, I'm sorry, John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, John is Elijah. How do we reconcile that? We reconcile that through the words of the angel Gabriel. And so John, um, before John was born, the angel Gabriel appears to his daddy, Zechariah. And the angel Gabriel says this about John the Baptist. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, here it is, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so John the Baptist, not literally the man Elijah, but absolutely he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So Jesus is right when he says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so in verse 22, the committee, the religious committee, goes out to the Jordan River, and they say to John, who are you? And I love his answer, all right? So look, look at verse 23 now. John chapter one, verse 23. He says, I am the voice. Can you guys please shout out those two words, the voice? Love that. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And now they, religious committee, had been sent from the Pharisees, that portion of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And so John quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. Now this is fascinating because, listen, that right there was written about 700 years B.C., one of the ways we know that this is not some ordinary book, but it is God's word, is because of the scores of prophecies uttered in the Old Testament, literally fulfilled in the New Testament. And so here's Isaiah the prophet, around 700 BC, and he's prophesying about the coming Messiah, and look at what he says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so the voice that the prophet Isaiah spoke about, of course, 700 years later, that voice belongs to John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy. He knew as he read his scroll of Isaiah, that's me <laughs> that Isaiah was talking about. And now look at how fascinating this is. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of who? The Lord. Did you guys know in the Hebrew, it's prepare the way of Yehovah or Yahweh. All right, so if you're with me, say amen here. The voice belongs to who? You tell me. John, the, um, the voice belongs to who? John the Baptist. And what is he doing? He's crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of who? Yahweh. Okay, so who is Jesus? Are you getting it? Who is Jesus? He's God, he's Yahweh. John the Baptist, the voice. 
is saying prepare the way of Yahweh as he's talking about Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist absolutely knew who the real Jesus was. And so prepare, prepare, prepare. In ancient times, when a king came to a city, what would, what would happen? There would, there would be a herald that would be sent before the king, and the herald would go to the city where the king is about to come and say, hey, get ready, the king is coming. Hey, everybody, get ready, the king is coming. And how do these people prepare? One of the ways is they went out and they made sure that the road the king would be traveling on was repaired, that the road was, was clear, right? So that the king wouldn't have a bumpy ride in his chariot coming into the city. And so John the Baptist is that voice. The religious committee wants to know, who are you? He says, I'm a voice, I'm a herald, and you, you need to get ready because the king is coming. How many of you guys believe that Jesus Christ is coming really soon? I wonder if you really believe that. See, I, I personally believe that the second coming is closer than most people think. Okay, so follow me here, application time. What should we be doing in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ to planet Earth? Yeah, just like John the Baptist, we should be voices in the spiritual wilderness of our world, calling on people to get ready, get ready, because the king is coming, calling people to prepare themselves. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I'm gonna tell you how you can prepare for his coming at the end of the message, but now look, look at verse 25. The religious committee asks John the Baptist, he goes, then they go, why are you baptizing? if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you. I love this. I think Jesus is like in the crowd right here. <laughs> I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so cultural context here in that day, right inside the front door of homes, there was a basin and a jug of water. Why? Because there's no indoor plumbing in those days. And everybody's walking around with sandals and so their feet are getting dirty as they walk on the dirt roads. And so mama doesn't want you coming into her house with dirty feet, right? So there's a basin and there's water. And so when the master of the house came into the house, into the front door, if you're listening, say amen here. It was the job of the lowest servant to greet the master and to stoop down as the master sits down, stoop down and undo the strap of his sandals remove his sandals and wash his feet. John the Baptist says to this committee, hey, you wanna know who I am? I'm a voice and I'm telling you, you need to get ready because the Messiah is coming. You wanna know who I am? I'm like the lowest servant of the house and I'm not even worthy to undo the straps 
of the king's sandals. This is powerful. You know why John the Baptist was so greatly used in his generation? One word, humility. Because the guy was so humble. Man, he knew he was just a voice and he knew he was the lowest servant. And ladies and gentlemen, if we wanna be greatly used by God in our generation, we got to humble ourselves as well. This is the key. Listen, this is the key to anointed ministry. This is the key to God's blessing. This is the key um, because listen, it's not by our power, it's not by our might, it's by the power and the might of the Spirit of the Lord. But the Lord is not gonna use somebody who thinks he's a big shot. The Lord's not gonna use somebody who's trying to build some kind of kingdom around himself. The Lord is not gonna use somebody who's pointing to himself. The Lord is gonna use people like John the Baptist who are constantly pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the key. And so we gotta be humble. We gotta tell ourselves on a regular basis, I'm just a voice and I'm just a servant. And so you say, well, what are you saying, pastor? Just, just lay it out straight for us, okay? I'll lay it out as straight as I can. This week, you gotta be a voice. And as God opens doors through your lips and your life, you gotta help people get ready for the coming of the king. You say, pastor, just make it clear. What are you saying I'm supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be like that lowest servant understanding that you and I, we're not worthy, but we're willing to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we're willing to serve other people. We're a voice, and we are servants of the King. Now, the drama hits the all-time high because Jesus is right now, right here in your Bible, ready to publicly display himself. So look at verse 29. Here's your last two verses. Please stay with me all the way to the end, okay? It says that the next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him. And so before, he's just kind of in the crowd. No one really knows. But now, he's coming out of the crowd, coming toward John, and John looks at him and says in verse 29, behold, hey everybody, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's excited. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now when he said that phrase, the Lamb of God, Everybody in that crowd would have thought, sacrifice. Now that's amazing to me, I don't have time to go down this rabbit trail, but, but listen, they were waiting for a Messiah and their view of the coming Messiah was that he, he would be some kind of a big bad military leader, right? Bad meaning not evil, but bad meaning like this guy's awesome, right? He's gonna deliver us from Rome and he's gonna just pound the Romans and he's gonna elevate us. And, and, and John, when he sees Jesus says, Behold the great military leader? No, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How did he know that? Because God's been revealing things to John the Baptist. And I think, personally, he's been reading Isaiah 53. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go home and read Isaiah 53. It's Jesus in the Old Testament. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And everybody's thinking sacrifice, 
specifically the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And so when the children of Israel, way back in the second book of your Bible, um, when the children of Israel were there in uh, the book of Exodus, they were in slavery to the Egyptians, and so the Lord determines to set his people free. So who does God pick? God picks Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, uh, God says, let my people go. And how did Pharaoh respond? Does anybody remember? No. No. Right? And so what does God do? God sends plagues, plague after plague, to show his glory, to show his power. But despite all the plagues, Pharaoh still hardens his heart, and he won't set the Israelites free. No. And by the way, if you're watching right now from home and you're here in this room and God is clearly moving, telling you to do something, don't cross your arms and say no. Just do what the Lord wants you to do. No, no, no. And so God tells Moses, all right, there's gonna be one final plague. And by, by the way, this is the worst of all. Around midnight, the death angel is gonna come to Egypt. And the death angel is gonna kill all the firstborn sons in Egypt. And because the Lord wanted to protect the Israelites in the midst of the Egyptians, he gives the Israelites instructions through Moses of how to avoid the terrible judgment. The Lord says, I want the head of every household to find a lamb. And I want you to take that lamb, one year old, male, without blemish or without spot. And head of whole household, I want you to take that lamb and I want you to sacrifice the lamb. Pour the blood into a basin. Take a hyssop branch. Dip it in to the blood. And then I want you to apply the blood to the lintel and to the two doorposts of your doorway. Everybody look at me. Lintel, doorposts. What does that remind you of? The cross. And then they were to roast the lamb and eat it. The Lord said to the Israelites, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will what? Feast of Passover. I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the Israelites applied the blood and they were spared judgment. The Egyptians were not spared. The next morning there's a great cry throughout Egypt. Why? Because the firstborn sons were dead. Pharaoh's firstborn son, dead. And that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Pharaoh calls in Moses, says, get out of here, right? And then there's this massive exodus, second book of your Bible, um, of the Israelites from Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is judgment is coming. The good news is Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
1 Corinthians 5, 7. And having never sinned, Peter says, quote, he's the lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1, 19. And by his sacrifice, here's what Jesus did. Christ absorbed the judgment of God against our sin by suffering and dying in our place. And ladies and gentlemen, his blood can wash away your sin, thus protecting you from the judgment to come if you'll turn to him in repentance and faith. Acts 20, 21. John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's how you and I can prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Are you a child of God?